Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24 through verse 34. God's holy and inspired words given to us for our good. Let us attend to its reading. Luke 22, verse 24. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would speak through it, that its truth would shine forth and nothing else, that by it we would live, breathe, feast on Christ who is our Savior, that our souls might be nourished this day and strengthened, and that you would strengthen us according to our needs, which are so many and so vast, beyond even what we know and and wider certainly than we can fathom. O Father, by your Spirit come, speak through your word, may you be honored and receive all of the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Muhammad Ali famously said, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And there's a story that perhaps may be legend, but because of what we know about the of his brashness, this probably isn't hard to believe. He was on, a, on an airplane when the flight came into some turbulence. And as ha- tends to happen, everyone is told to go to their seats and, and fasten their seatbelts. Ali, never a man who enjoyed being told what to do, refused to get into his seat. And a flight attendant woman came by, told him, these instructions are not optional. You need to get into your seat and you need to fasten your seatbelt. And Ali quipped, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And uh, this woman, clearly up to the challenge that day, snapped back, Superman don't need no airplane, neither. And uh, even the most powerful among us, you open your eyes, and you have all kinds of evidence to the limitations of your power all kinds of things that you would see that is enough to to humble you. But pride 
human pride and, and the, the desire for self-exaltation and increasing your own fame is a blinder. It blinds us, it hampers us, it cripples us. It's perhaps the most direct assault on our ability to live in the way that our Creator has intended, understanding our place as those who have been created for the honor, the exaltation, the glory of someone else. We see in Ali, we see all around us, all around in our culture, this desire for self-exaltation. And fundamentally, it's a distortion of what it means to be human. It, It misunderstands, as I was mentioning, our place as creatures. As creatures, we exist to point to the all-satisfying, the all-glorious majesty and honor and glory of God, our Creator. And as sinners who have been saved by Christ, we exist in an even more peculiar way and an even more conspicuous position to magnify the glory of God in redemption, redeemed sinners. And the wonder of it all is that God involves us in his process of honor and exaltation. He gives exaltation to his people. But the proper path is essential for us to understand. The proper path to that exaltation is one of humility, which we might call really the supreme virtue of the Christian life, faith and and humility. Following the Savior, Jesus Christ, and trusting not in our own strength, so that as we are exalted at the proper time, the glory of God might, or the glory that God shares with us might redound back to Him. We're involved in this process of bringing greater glory to God, even as He shares His honor with us. For we know that without Him we would be nothing. Without Him we would be nothing. So by humility we involve ourselves in, in this glorification of God and begin to understand that we live and breathe for his glory. So three ideas. First is the exemplar of humble service. The exemplar of humble service, which is Jesus Christ, the supreme example of humble service. Secondly, the end of humble service, which is to mean the goal. Uh, What is humble service getting us to as we humbly serve God and serve each other? And then finally, a a humbling example of humble service. Peter is this example uh, that humbles us even as we see ourselves in the Apostle Peter. So first, the exemplar of humble service, Jesus Christ. We turn to this passage, and uh, of course we're in the context now of the Passion narrative. We're in the Last Supper. We're sort of confronted with this reality of the cross, that Jesus is going to the cross to pay the price for sin. So the weight of that is upon us. And then we see here, the way that Luke has arranged his material, that a dispute arises among the disciples about which of them is the greatest. Clearly, this is to be understood in the context of Jesus' ministry. Who is the greatest follower of Jesus? Who is the greatest in his kingdom? Who is it that will occupy the place of highest honor when he comes into the fullness of his kingdom? The Gospel of Mark has a couple of different instances where this kind of conversation is going on. James and John in Mark chapter 10 request Jesus they might sit on his right and on his left. And Jesus responds in in a very reasonable way, looking back on it now that we know the end from the beginning. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that has been given to me? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am going to undergo? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you knew where I was headed, 
If you knew the fullest extent of the suffering that is appointed for me, you wouldn't be that eager to be known as my most trusted follower, as my right-hand man. And there Jesus is showing, too, that it's, the cross is a cross that only he can bear as the perfect son of God. As I mentioned, Luke has sort of an interesting arrangement of the material here. Matthew and Mark don't have this conversation part of the Last Supper. That doesn't mean we have a, a problem with proving the truthfulness of Scripture. It just means that oftentimes, and what seems to be the case here, that Luke arranges his material thematically. And what he's doing is he's bringing into sharp contrast the humble service of Jesus Christ as he is in anguish and preparing to go to the cross, and then you have this vain desire for pride and fame and self-exaltation of uh, the disciples face-to-face with the suffering of Jesus, face-to-face with their prideful desire for fame. In this way, the disciples, of course, are not following the exemplar, are they? They're not following Jesus. They are thinking in terms of the fallen world. They're thinking in terms of the system of this world, which is what Jesus says in verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Especially in our translation, it translates that to make it seem as a negative kind of rule. This word for lord it over could be used in a neutral way, just someone who has authority and exercises that authority. Or it could be used negatively, a a tyrannical sort of authority that is exercised on someone or something. Most of the time in the New Testament, this is used in a, neg- a negative way. Some kind of, uh, something that exercises a tyrannical authority over someone or something else. For instance, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that death no longer reigns over Christ and no longer rules over him. And so sin is no longer to rule over us. Sin is no longer to have a tyrannical rule and dominion over us. Jesus is highlighting the way that Kingdoms of the earth, the kingdoms of the nations, usually and oftentimes do act. If you have power, use it, is the unavoidable conclusion that many come to in our world. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In the last couple of centuries, we've seen that uh, societies have sort of figured that out, so you spread out power as much as you can. Right? You don't have power in the hands of a precious few, but you separate those powers. And even still in those societies, we see oftentimes, too many times really, people exploiting whatever power they have, even if it's just a, a small slice of the pie. But this is the way that kingdoms of the world often work. Jesus points out another characteristic of worldly power and kingdoms, which is that authority, power, can be bought And that's what he says at the end of verse 25. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. These benefactors would be those who had money, had wealth. They would uh, bestow some large sum of money, public act of, of benevolence. And through that, they would gain authority. They would gain power. They would gain a position uh, in government types of systems. In other words, you can buy it. That is the way of the world. You can Bribe your way into power. Jesus uh, directly refutes this as the mindset of his kingdom. This is not how the kingdom of God is to act. This is not how the kingdom of God is to operate. It's not to be swayed 
through a blank check. Acts chapter 8 is a good illustration of this. The apostles are beginning to preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit is going out into the world uh, on those who, who believe and who repent of their sin. And Simon the magician is following the apostles and he sees that as the apostles are laying their hands on people, the Holy Spirit is given to them. And so this magician says, give me this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands on my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And it says he offered them money for this. I'll give you some money if you give me this power. Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. He goes on to say, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Jesus says this is not the way his kingdom acts. It's not how it goes. It's not doesn't act in terms of bribery and certainly doesn't act in terms of the exploitation of power. Rather, these disciples are to act like the youngest. That's the first thing that we read. They're to act like the youngest. Now, important for us to perhaps note, Jesus isn't uh, saying this as sort of a 20th, 21st century person who's caught up in the idolatry of youth culture. And after World War II, had this sort of idolatry of youth culture that sort of led into the MTV generation, which uh, basically has had this message that adulthood is uncool, right? Virtue, responsibility, walking a long path to establishing your life for you and your family, having a noble inheritance, that that's all uncool. That's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, he's saying uh, to live and act in the way that young people in those days and children in the Greco-Roman world would have been reminded all of the time that they are not the most important person in the world, that they are to respect their elders, that they are to speak and answer respectfully when someone else speaks to you. It sounds somewhat familiar, mostly a, a vague memory now, but perhaps many of us were raised in such ways. In other words, Jesus is saying, uh, act or assume position of the youngest. He's saying, don't assume you are the most important. Don't assume you are the center of the universe. Remind yourself daily that you are not the most important. This is where life in the kingdom of God begins. Then Jesus says, adopt the posture of a servant. Live to meet the needs of others. Live with deep concern for the needs and the wants of others. Become like the one who serves, he says. For who is greater? The one seated at the table or the one who serves? It is the one at the table. If any of you have ever waited tables, you know that that kind of feeling. You feel as you're at at your job, doing your job, you're like, wow, uh, almost it just doesn't matter what I want at this time. I'm living in order to meet their needs. Jesus has become like one who serves. But then he holds up his own work as the exemplar, doesn't he? He says, I am among you as one who serves. Here I am, and I am the exemplar of humble service. In other words, Jesus says this. He says something very clearly. I am the one who defines and shows the foundations of my kingdom. I define my kingdom. I set the terms. I put on display life in the kingdom of God. And it is not of this world. It is founded on loving sacrifice. It's founded upon sacrifice. It is founded upon the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of the cross. So Luke is bringing into sharp contrast here this desire of the disciples 
and the humble, selfless giving of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, at the Last Supper, what is it that Jesus does? He washes the disciples' feet. And the Gospel of John puts it, the NIV translation, I think, puts it, uh, he now showed them the fullest extent of his love. As he stoops down, washes their feet, a picture of the cross. Humility breeds love. Right? Jesus humbled himself. He showed love. He loved them to the end because he served them. He gave himself for his people. This is what Jesus did. This is the foundation of the kingdom of God, sacrificial service. And this is one of the most important aspects of the Christian life, to understand the danger of human pride, to understand the ubiquity of human pride. It's everywhere. It's in us. It's in our world. And to understand how antithetical it is to Christ's kingdom. This is a constant motif in the scriptures and especially in the gospels. As Jesus is looking to the Pharisees and he's condemning them, he's condemning their hypocrisy. Why? Because they they made a show of their righteousness. It was an outward show. But they were like unmarked graves with the, the stench of death on the inside. Their hypocrisy came out of their pride. They wanted to exalt themselves. The, the visual of it that's, that's helpful, Jesus condemns them for making their tassels long on their robes and their phylacteries broad. Phylacteries would be these leather boxes that they would tie on their arm and on their head. And in those boxes would be scrolls of different passages of the Torah. They would put that on as they prayed. So to make it broad, is, in other words, to broadcast that you're praying. The tassels on their robes were symbols of their righteousness. In other words, they wanted those to be long so that people would see and that the, the, the significance of that would be these are righteous people. Signified for us also in that, that prayer that is really central to the Gospel of Luke, the prayer of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who says, thank you God for making me this way. Thank you for making me righteous. The tax collector says, I'm not worthy to stand before you. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Book of Isaiah says, God has regard for the humble and the contrite hearts. Humility, that chief of all virtues. In today's world, we see this in the religious world. We see it outside of the religious world. Really, it is everywhere. This culture of self-exaltation. I am the greatest. The controlling mantra of our celebrity culture. This, this whole notion of uh, wanting to follow the lives of celebrities so that we can get as close as we can to their life because we want to be like them, because we want to live vicariously through them. We want our names to be worshipped and adored. It's a, I read an article recently that said if you ask young people what they want to be when they grow up, a common answer now is just famous. It doesn't signify particularly what they want to do or be. All they know is that they want to be famous. Not only that, but there's a a broadcasting of supposed righteousness. There's virtue signaling all the time. When people are trying to broadcast how good they are and how much they have regard for other people, all the while rejecting their creator and their savior. This is, of course, not to say that this is not a problem for us, but it's to see human pride and how much it permeates our world. And then to remind ourselves that God hates pride. He hates pride, and it is a direct attack on his sovereignty. 
It is that, that state in which we say, I want to do it my way and I don't want it God's way. Proverbs chapter 8. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 16. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 13. By pride comes nothing but strife. Disgrace, destruction, strife. All of these things which highlight how pride goes against human flourishing. There's something about it that's a fundamental distortion of what it means to be human. It destroys relationships. It destroys institutions. It destroys honor. One of the largest evangelical churches in Chicagoland had to, after many years of contention and strife, last month or so, their pastor finally stepped down. I'm not going to act like I'm closely involved with this situation, but I have a couple personal connections to it. I can tell you that it all comes down to pride. This church, tens of thousands of members, and uh, this pastor stepped down, and it was because his pride ate away at his character and his ministry and ultimately that church. But in the face of all of this, we find the picture of the exemplar, Jesus Christ. The wonder of the gospel is that the very one who could seek his own fame, who could seek his own exaltation and had every right to, nevertheless humbled himself to the poverty of bearing God's wrath, to the poverty of bearing the curse for sin in order to save us. This is the work of Christ. Though rich, he was rich and he became poor. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is also yours in Christ Jesus. What is that mind? Well, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Why? Because that is what Jesus did. He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Scripture pounds this into our heads so we begin to grasp how central it is and how with our fallen human nature, we are completely given to prideful thoughts and prideful actions. We're consumed. We live in a world consumed with the exaltation of Self. And in the midst of all of that, there is one who would not exalt himself, but who humbled himself and went to the cross. Some people read this passage and it, it seems like the, the, the only enduring lesson or, or the main enduring lesson is that uh, hierarchy and structure and authority all need to be done away with. We need to understand that Jesus is telling this to those who would become apostles, who would be the foundation of the New Testament church, who would go out and proclaim the gospel and would do so with authority. But Jesus is telling them, this is the manner you are to lead. The manner in which you are to lead is one of humble service, happening in the context of the Last Supper. The apostles then become that that foundation, those pillars of the New Testament church, as we read in Revelation 21 paving the way for the elders and the deacons of the church. In other words, an enduring lesson of this passage is that, yes, it is legitimate to have that structure, to have those who are given authority in the church to lead and to govern and to rule, but the manner in which they are to serve is humble service, to do so out of humility, to do so with regard for the spiritual good of the ones over whom they have been placed. One enduring picture, one thing that stays with us is When we take the Lord's Supper together, the elders serve the elements. Taken directly from what happens here. That is a a picture of their humble service 
of you, that they exist in humility. They are not to lord it over the people of God, but they are to lead uh, in the manner of the Savior. The entire office of deacon is one that highlights servant hearts and servanthood. I'm so blessed to, to, to serve with the elders and the deacons of this church, humbled by them. It's been wonderful to see the, the, the service that uh, the, a lot of the deacons have been doing in recent months. And that has been humbling as well. It's the, the manner in which those who lead, those who govern, those who rule, how are they to serve in the church in a manner fitting with the kingdom, not lording it over, but seeking to serve and to honor uh, the people and to glorify God in doing so. That is the, the, the end or the goal of, of humble service. So Jesus is not doing away with exaltation. He's not doing away with honor, but he's saying, in whom is honor found? And through what is honor found? Proverbs 29 says this, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. In other words, the obtaining of honor endures. There's this sense in which exaltation is a good thing. Glory is a good thing. Psalm 8, we read and we remember that God has created human beings for glory and honor. He has crowned them with glory and honor. But it is an honor and a glory that it must exist in a proper relation to God, in a proper relation to the glory of God. So Jesus will send the apostles forth, and they will live a life of service to God and Savior. They will give their lives to the church and to helping to establish the church. They were with Jesus in the beginning. They're given this place of, of leadership and honor and exaltation. They are given to, to rule in the kingdom of God, these thrones, Jesus says, I confer on you a kingdom, just as the Father conferred one upon me. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So these things endure. But it endures in this way. This is what we have to understand. A proper glory that is experienced, a proper exaltation experienced by a creature, is one that redounds back to the Creator. Any exaltation that we receive or that we are given, it must redound back to, the, to our Creator. It must increase the glory of God. It's, it must be an exaltation that does not stop with us. It must be an exaltation that proceeds to the one who is truly, truly glorious. And this is what it means, or, or where we begin to understand that every piece of our life, Every bit of our life is for the glory of God. This is why we exist. And God sweeps us up in that exaltation as we are his redeemed people. But in whatever way we receive honor and exaltation, through the path of humility, it will redound back to our creator. It will redound back to our savior, Jesus Christ. Christ humbled himself, therefore God has highly exalted him. And then we do this finally in humble service. So honor, exaltation, these things remain, but they remain on the path of humility. They must serve to advance ultimately the glory of God. It's a glory that does not stop with us. And then finally, and we see the example of Peter uh, who was humbled unto humble service. This exchange between Jesus and Peter gives us the essential reminder of, what, of why we need to daily die to ourselves, why we need to renounce our pride, why we need to live for the glory of God and how it comes from his strength and not ours. As your days 
your strength shall be. Jesus says that Satan has asked to sift you. That's a plural you. So Satan has asked to sift all of the disciples. He wants to, uh, reminds us actually of Job 1, where Satan asks permission to get into the life of Job and to, to do as much damage as he can. Satan here has asked to sift all of the disciples in order to do as much damage as possible. But Jesus says, Peter, I have prayed for you. That's a singular you for Peter. So he singles them out here. I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And what Jesus is saying here is, is I have prayed that you might become this example in which not only all of the other disciples, but all of the church understands the way in which we walk the path of humility. Seeing and knowing our failures, seeing and knowing uh, our propensity to fail and fall, and yet understanding and knowing the restoring power of the grace of God and the strength that he gives to us. Peter becomes this supreme example of the need to constantly live with humility, to live in the shadow of the cross, to live by the grace of God. It will always come back to the Lord's strength and not ours. We see this intercessory prayer of Jesus. I've prayed for you, Peter, reminding us of the need for the intercession of our Savior. Pride in ourselves, pride in our strength will always go before a fall. Peter says, I will never leave. I'll follow you to prison. I'll follow you to death. We're always struck by the proximity of Peter saying this to uh, his denial of Jesus. He will deny Jesus three times. He becomes this supreme example for us because there will be times when we will fail. There will be times when we will fall. There will be times when we will have thought that we, would, we were not susceptible to that ensnaring sin, to that besetting sin, to whatever was going to affect us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Are you walking the path of humility and remembering that it's only by the grace of God you are given strength. We would know Peter then. Well, he is set up as this one. That we would know that he was the one who was the leader. He was the one who was probably the oldest of the disciples. He would speak up first. He was zealous as a follower of Jesus. Filled with courage. And yet at that defining moment. He denies his Lord. In order that we may know. That none of us. Not Peter. Paul anyone else, not any of us would be able to look at our body of work, we'd be able to look at our resume and say, yep, I did it. I did it on my own. Rather, that we would go to a place like 1 Peter chapter 5, and we have to read this passage in light of Peter being the one who denied Jesus, but who was restored, who was promised strength, daily grace that God would attend to all of his needs. Listen to what Peter says, and hear these words as the one who denied Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Peter says, humble yourselves so that at the proper time he might exalt you, but so that your exaltation might serve the greater purpose of the glory of God, that it might redound back to your creator, redound back to your redeemer. This is what it means to properly seek the exaltation that God gives to his people through the gospel, through Christ, so that we might never say, yes, I did it on my own, but that as God sweeps us up in this honor and exaltation, we give glory back to him, a glory that magnifies his name more and more. This is a humility that brings joy in saying, whatever honor the Lord gives to me, I give it all back to him. Because my greatest joy, our greatest joy must be to bring honor and glory and majesty to our God and our King and our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise, we praise your glory. We ask that you would impress these truths upon our hearts, the need to walk in humility as we see our Savior going before us, who paid the price and who constitutes us as righteous, establishes us. We trust in your grace and in your strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.